Welcome to Brazen Education with Educator Barnes, a podcast with a focus on speaking your truth, being transparent to help others, and having no shame about it. Because we can't move forward until the truth is known. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Brazen Education. I am Educator Barnes, your host, and today the topic is literacy, in particular, the podcast by Emily Hanford sold a story. And I have a special guest here with me today, my husband, um, Mr. Barnes. Um, but for you guys, you, his name is Jermaine Barnes. Um, Mr. Barnes, welcome to the episode. Thank you, Mrs. Barnes. <laughs> I am privileged to be on this episode with you. Well, so you're probably wondering what would have got me to invite my husband to my podcast. I actually have wanted to have him on here for a while, uh, but I never had imagined asking him to come on about literacy. Um, just a little bit about my husband. Well, actually, he can tell you. Um, let them know what you, uh, well, we met at Purdue, which many of my followers know. Um, we met there. But um, what um, were you studying and what is your current um, career path? Like, what do you do? So at Purdue, uh, I was in the School of Technology and my uh degree program was computer technology with an emphasis on software development. After I graduated from Purdue, um, I worked in the private sector for about 10 years. And then uh, as a as a database administrator, um, which is totally different than what my concentration was on, but um, database administration, um, was just something I wanted to do. Um, it puts me in a world where I'm I'm dealing with um, physical hardware as well as um, software development and um, building applications. And so I, I did that for 10 years in the private sector. And now for the last um, almost seven years, I've been working for the state of Indiana, um, which is the branch, uh, the agency I work for is the Indiana Office of Technology, and that is a branch under um, executive leadership, which is, you know, Governor Eric Holcomb. And so um, that's what I do. That's where I currently work. And uh, what he left out, um, his uh, specialty is Oracle, and he's the lead uh DBA for his team. So my husband is in the STEM career, and most of you guys know STEM is uh, science, technology, engineering, math. My background is literacy. Uh, for uh, new people that are chiming in, um, I'm licensed in five areas. I've had a role in all those areas. So for most of my career, I was a middle school English teacher. I also spent some time as an English as a new uh, language learner teacher working with um, students whose first language wasn't English. I did it at the elementary level. I was an elementary and high school literacy coach, uh, elementary librarian, and my uh, last role when I was an employee of the school district was as the middle school academic dean where I co-supervised the middle school and supervised um, all of the middle school English teachers, middle school social studies teachers, and K through eight electives. Currently, I am a full-time education consultant and I uh, write um, about education and I supervise student teachers who are becoming dual licensed. So my student teachers are going to pick up an elementary license or a secondary license, but they're also picking up an ESOL license, which is English uh, to speakers of other languages. Uh, but in all the roles I've had, literacy has been a key point. And when Emily Hanford started her article series on what the words say, I started reading it because like anytime someone's writing about literacy, I'm there. So I was reading her articles and then recently she dropped her podcast, sold a story where she focused on Mari Clay, 
um, Lucy Calkins, Fontis, and Pinnell, and Heinemann, um, the company um, that um, produces um, content that's created by um, Fontis and Pinnell and Lucy Calkins. And we went to Mississippi, um, Jackson, Mississippi, where uh, my father-in-law lives and uh, many of my husband's relatives live, but in the, uh, what would you call it, suburbs, rural Mississippi, around Jackson, right? Yes. Uh, and on the way back, I told, even though I wasn't feeling so great, I had a really bad sinus infection, I said, I have to listen to this podcast because First of all, I had read all the articles. So many people were talking about it. And note, I said, I had to listen to this podcast. So I put it on. And what's important to note, what is about 12 hours with stops and stuff, driving between Indianapolis, Indiana, and Jackson, Mississippi. So normally our rule of trade is when we're driving this, whoever is driving, they kind of get pick of what is on the radio, whether it's a podcast, where music it is, because you are the one that needs to focus. Uh, so I was, I understood I was not driving and I had a bad headache, bad science infection, which I learned later after we returned back home. But I said, I just really need to listen to this podcast because I just, everyone's talking about it. I've read the articles and I just want to get a little bit more. And so when I was listening to it, my husband started talking to <laughs> the podcast and he started asking all these questions and I'm like, I need you to come on this podcast because I knew I wanted to talk and share some thoughts about it. But I also wanted a parent perspective, a parent perspective of someone who doesn't have a literacy background. Um, so so tonight um, or in the morning or during lunch, whenever you listen to this episode, you will um, hear both the educator perspective and the parent perspective, both a mom's perspective and a dad's perspective. For those of you who don't know, we have identical twin boys. They are currently in sixth grade. Um, they are in honors math, honors English, and the rest of their classes are regular. And they have just applied for honors, honors science and social studies for seventh grade. So we'll see how that turns out. So uh, Emily released six episodes for Soul of the Story. We're not going to give away a whole bunch of spoilers because we want you to go and listen. But the main focus of Soul of the Story was that teachers, um, the public, whoever it is that you want to say, they were sold a, a story because a lot of times when I was growing up, I was told that you couldn't say to an adult that they lied, right? As a child, like that was just a no-no. So instead, you would say they told a story, uh, a, a euphemism for saying they didn't tell the truth. So so the story is really about how kids weren't being told the truth. Teachers weren't being taught the truth about how kids learn how to read. And so there's a focus on the science of reading, what that is. And she builds in the politics, what has been happening in this curriculum, who's involved, and the why behind it. And listening to it, I found it very, like, some parts shocking and some parts not surprised. And then a lot of it was just disappointment. So, babe, what was your, like, when you were listening to it, what was one of the first things that stood out to you that really piqued your interest? That's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I ask loaded questions on this show. <laughs> yeah. <You'd>, uh, <laughs> um, there was a lot said during that podcast. Um, I don't know if I could really, you know, point to a silver bullet or something that really um, sparked my interest. But I, I, I guess I can start with what made me um ask you questions and that was the fact that um this particular teaching strategy um that was under scrutiny uh, was never vetted out or or researched to basically prove that um you know that it would work and you know, I'm not an academia 
person. I don't come from academia, but, you know, to to hear that, you know, children are being taught with the strategy that, you know, didn't have any research behind it or didn't have any valid data points or proof that it was effective was very concerning to me. And, you know, to hear that it was basically used across the country, I was... I was in shock, you know, I, I just, I had no idea and it seemed very problematic to me. So that's what, you know, drew my attention to it. And the particular strategy he's talking about is uh, when Emily started talking about the queuing system. Now I taught psycholinguistics for five years at a university. At another university, I taught linguistics for teachers that were going to work with multilingual learners. And in those courses, I talked about the queuing system. I, and there's even a diagram I would show my students. I would take three circles and overlap them. And in the middle of that circle will be the word comprehension. So if you had all these bubbles, uh, you know, the, the, the graphophonics, the uh, semantics, the syntax, and all those things overlap, you have comprehension. But when Emily was talking about the queuing strategy in her podcast, she was talking about the fact that kids weren't actually reading the words on the page. They were being taught to guess and that the guessing was okay because as long as they could comprehend or get an overall meeting, it was fine. And I'm not going to give away the spoiler um, that that you get to in episode six, uh, but there are two camps of really what people believe should be happening and I I feel like it's a disservice to children because essentially if a kid reads a word uh, and they read the word incorrectly but they get an overall meaning of the story there are people that believe that oh that's okay comprehension is what's most important and I know Emily has gotten some pushback and some people have called her and people who are been in her camp phonicators which I'm just like really people we got to come up with a term like that uh, but if those people aren't listening, she is not advocating for phonics only. She's saying that is phonics and comprehension and these other things. And she's saying that the queuing system or and because we're not saying the kids, we're going to learn the queuing system today, even though that was mentioned many times on the podcast. But in one of the strategies in the podcast, it talked about how the teacher literally covered the word <laughs> and then said, what word do you think is here? As they literally guessed. <laughs> and I remember my husband's like, what? That makes no sense. How are they using this strategy? But during the pandemic, uh, when we both were at home remotely, I heard my husband say this word prod all the time. I'm like, what the heck is prod? And I learned that prod is production. And then I'm like, why do y'all keep saying prod all the time? And what, what in his job... And this is why I asked him to tell y'all what he does, because this man always be saying, I don't be explaining his job correctly. So that's why I say you can, you can explain what you do. But um, if I misspeak, he will correct it. But before something gets into production or is live, a lot of his job is planning out and researching the best strategy to use before implementation. So even though my husband earlier said that he's not in academia, I don't think you have to be in academia to be alarmed by some of the findings that Emily shared. We use the strategy. Well, I ain't gonna say we. Some people, I ain't about that. There are some people that were using a strategy that didn't work. And not only did it not work, but they didn't go and test it out or, or read research because a lot of what my husband does When there's an issue, he actually takes the time and researches how to fix the issue before fixing the issue. Um, So you don't have to be in academia to be like, so we use the strategy for kids. The strategy didn't work. Um, And now we're going to blame the kids because that for me, that was something that alarmed me. A lot of teachers were like, oh, I just blame the kids. It was the kids fault. And now some of those teachers that um, Emily had the opportunity to, to interview, they were like, Oh, it was actually not them. It was uh, me. Now, now did I, did I explain production and all that, that stuff correctly? 
You did a good job, Miss Barnes. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear. I'll be picking up some, some of this uh, technological uh, jargon, but the pandemic gave me a, a front seat uh, to, to some of this jargon. But I just thought there was a really unique um, parallel there. Um, and the other thing, so tell them a little bit about some of the questions as we were listening to the podcast. What were some of the questions that you brought up about our kids' school that you had uh, concerns about when we were listening? Well, the very first question I asked my wife was, is this the strategy that the kids are currently using? And understand, um, you know, my wife stated, you know, our kids are currently in sixth grade. But when I asked that question, that I, I want to know, was that the strategy they used when they were in elementary school, you know, first through fifth grade? And she said, yes. And I, you know, I... I <laughs> Um, I couldn't believe it. I was a little upset, but then I made a statement. I, you know, as my wife stated, you know, she's, um, she's a great teacher. Um, she's a great researcher. Um, and, uh, you know, she helped our kids out a lot. And, uh, I just said, I was like, you know, Shantae, if you weren't, if you and I weren't teaching our kids, phonics and sight words and and all the basics um like sounding out words when they were like pre-k and kindergarten i'm not sure they would be really reading at the level they are right now or just reading period um because it was just i just couldn't believe that's how they evaluated children on whether they could read or not and that was the actual strategy. So that was one question is, you know, were they taught that? And I guess the second question I had was, why are they still using it? Um, you know, cause it, it doesn't seem like it's, it's really helping, you know? Um, and then I guess another question on that was, you know, when we when we and my wife were in school, you know, our book rental I think was like fifty or sixty dollars. But when my kids were in elementary school, it was like what was it, like a hundred and twenty dollars? A ridiculous amount. <laughs> hundred and fifty dollars. And I'm like, good gracious, you know, what kind of books are they getting? And I'm starting to think now that most of that book rental was for this, um, uh, what you said, the queuing system? Well, not not just the queuing system. So you're thinking about the uh, Lucy Calkins units of study. Okay, but that was sorry. one of the questions because I'm in the parent group for our school district. And once this podcast came out, someone asked about it. But see, I started writing. I have a public uh, Facebook page, um, Educator Barnes. And on that page, when Emily started writing her articles, I said... Because they adopted the unit of studies, if I get this right, because it happened before the pandemic started, because our boys were in third grade when they started using the Lucy Calkins stuff. And I'm like, and we're using this Lucy Calkins stuff. And I asked about it and I wrote about it. And, and I'm on a, um, a equity committee for our school district. And when we have our next meeting, I'm going to ask about it because at some point we have to have a conversation. And I know uh, Lucy has added phonics now that she has saw the light. Uh, but Emily asked a good question. Why didn't she see the light? Why didn't she read the research before she starts pandering and selling this stuff out to schools? Because, uh, and for me, the other thing that really bothered me, because uh, Emily said something that challenged my thinking. Uh, there was a point where she said, um, I don't need kids to like to read. I need them to learn how to read. And there was another teacher that was involved in this conversation, a black teacher she was talking about. Now, fundamentally, I actually agree with that. I need kids to know how to read, but my husband will tell you, I want people to like reading. That was my thing. There's a book and I can't call the author's name. It's called, uh, Donalyn. I think it's Donalyn Miller. She, uh, I think, and if I misquote, I'm so sorry, uh, but she's uh, called the book whisperer and people used to joke. That was me as a middle school teacher, because one of the things that was like really something I would pr be proud of was when I got a student who would come to my class and said they had never read a book cover to cover. I found a book that they liked that they read cover to cover. I got them to read. 
I did book talks. I still, <laughs> at 39 years old, I still do book talks and I still hear from kids from other states um, about book talks I do uh, because I really want people to, re- I was at the beauty shop with uh, uh, Natalie uh, Pipkins from um, Black World Schoolers. Look her up. Um, we happened to be at the same salon at the same time and there was a stylist there that said that she didn't read. Both of us almost felt like we got stabbed in our little hearts. And we spent the rest of our section session getting our hair done, asking her a litany of questions. And by the end of that, sis had five books that she was going to try out and read. And we like, no, we're going to circle back. So there's a part of me that wants both. I want kids to know how to read, but I want kids to love to read. But I agree if I had to choose between the two, I would choose knowing how to read over loving how to read, obviously. Uh, So that did challenge my thinking. But why I mentioned that, people who are resistant to dropping Calkins or um, some of the strategies or a school of thoughts that she has and um, Fontis, Gesu, uh, Pinnell and Irene Fontes um, uh, have is because they feel like the other way is not fun. And I just think that's a cop out. Your lessons can be fun if you make them fun. So to my husband's point, they started the Lucy Calkins, then we go to the pandemic. And I was just really frustrated with it. Even my kids were frustrated uh, because when my, before, the, like it was a year before the pandemic happened. Uh, you remember what happened. The teacher called because they were doing F and P. So F and P is literally named after Fontis and Pinnell. They have a, a benchmark assessment test, which is essentially a running record to determine a kid's book level. And there's 26 levels based on the, the letters of the alphabet, right? Um, to give you an example, you started A in kindergarten, the end of kindergarten, you should be at level D, E. And it goes on and on and on from there. One of our kids came home really angry and he refused to take the test. Do you remember? You remember that? I remember it vividly. <laughs> and he said that he didn't need to take the test because he knew how to read and it was a waste of his time. That's exactly what he and said. And I was like, Lord, and I was just so there was exactly a- <laughs> what he said. <laughs> because I had taught him how to read because, and this is no shade to my school district, and I would say it to the superintendent's face, I had zero confidence that the school district was going to teach my kids how to read. And it had nothing to actually do with my school district. Because when I say that, people are like, you always critical out here about the school district. I had no confidence in the school district, not based on anything the school district did. It was based on my experience as a middle school teacher and having kid after kid after kid. And I mostly taught kids of color. And most of those kids of color were black kids who could not read. So I get you in seventh and eighth grade and you cannot read. And so when I'm seeing black boy after black boy after black boy come from different school systems, end up in my English class and can't read, to me it's saying, if I send my boys to school and just assume that the school district is going to teach them, that's not going to happen. So I went and got trained in Orton um, Gillingham, um, which I highly recommend is a program, it's a systematics uh, phonemic awareness program. orthographic, um, which is spelling, nice fancy word spelling, is a systematic program to get kids to understand uh, how to read. So I got trained in that. And I used those skills to teach our sons how to read when they were three. So by the time our kids went through kindergarten, they showed up reading. Uh, And side point, even though I didn't base the fact that I didn't think our kids could read based on the school district, as I said, I've been on committees for the school district. So February 14, 2020, and I'm not even looking at a calendar. I just knew it was, I just remember this date because it was Valentine's Day and it was like a month before the pandemic started. We go in, meet with the superintendent, NAACP is there, Urban League is there, all these people are there. I'm there um, for, I actually was representing two different groups, but I was there. And I remember when the district leaders were talking about you know, there's this gap between the black and white students because the black kids come to school unprepared. I sat in a meeting, I kid you not, same district leader made the same statement early, earlier in 2022. And if your reason to me, um, and I highly respect the district leader that said this, um, highly respect this particular individual. So this is not a put down to this person. But all I heard was these kids are coming behind 
we haven't figured out how to catch them up. And those kids are black. My kids are black. So if the school district is saying that we don't know how to catch up these kids and this is the school district my kids are going to, I cannot put faith in the school district. If kid after kid after kid comes to my class and can't read, that's why I went back to learn phonics because I'm a secondary English teacher. I went to Purdue for English education. I didn't go there to learn how to teach reading. I learned how to critically analyze reading. I went there to learn how to dive into Edgar Allan Poe and Shakespeare and Toni Morrison and make a critical essay, um, write persuasive essays, do a research paper, um, give a speech. So I had to go back to the basics and I used those skills to teach our kids how to read. And um, yes, they got good education from their school district, but they got good education, were able to learn because they came there with the foundations. Had they not got the foundations, I'm telling you right now, my kids would not be sitting in honors English. And even right now, my kids told me their honors English is easy because I pushed a lot of literacy onto my kids. And this is not a put down to my kids. My kids don't have anything extra inside of them that other black children or other kids don't have. The advantage, the value that they got was just me having the skills to teach them how to read. And I sure as heck was not saying, look at the picture. I was not saying that. <laughs> I would, oh, and, and my one son would cry. He would cry his little eyes out. Uh, I don't want to read. I don't like this. And I'm like, thank you for sharing that you don't like this, but we have to read this book today. And we would go back and forth, back and forth. But once he started reading, there was a part in the podcast. You remember that girl? She said, um, what did she say? Um, after she read that sentence, it was something like, um, I felt awesome or something. It, it was oh, the, the best thing ever. Yeah, she was just like, I can read it. And when my kid went from being frustrated that he was doing something that was hard to being able to do the hard thing, it was like the light bulb went off. Uh, and that's what I want for kids. They may not want to read, <laughs> but it's a difference between not wanting to read and can't read and not wanting to read, but you can uh, read. Um, so I know I like went into a whole like little rabbit hole there, um, for a moment, but what were some other things that stood out to you just as a parent, um, who isn't a, uh, isn't a teacher? Um, gosh, there was so much during that podcast. I feel kind of out of my league talking about it, to be honest. Um, I guess just hearing the stories, one story in particular, um, was from a a Vietnam veteran. Um, he was of Irish descent, I believe. In um, is he from Kansas? Oh, I don't remember the state. That that's getting too in the weeds with the details. But but anyway, <laughs> he was a, a a Vietnam veteran, um, a Marine, and he talked about his struggles um, as a child coming up through the school system. And, um, you know, how he really didn't know how to read. School made him very frustrated. Um, he got bullied, um, taunted a lot because, you know, he just he just didn't understand words. And, um, you know, he really couldn't get um, a good job uh, graduate after graduating high school, obviously, didn't you know didn't make the marks to to be accepted in into um into school so he joined um the marines um participated in vietnam and uh i, I forget what his title was but basically i believe he was a a helping hand um to the um uh, uh chaplains of the yeah, of the marine like corps something like that and there was a particular story where he was in the infirmary where all of these you know injured soldiers um were recovering you know from you know injuries and in war and there was this one gentleman that he said you know i mean he was just in really bad shape i mean he was bandaged up from head to toe almost and um you know 
it didn't really look like the the nurses were giving him the attention and 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 he went up to a nurse and said, "Why aren't you guys, Why aren't you guys helping him out?" And the nurse just shook his head, saying, "He doesn't have much time." And so, you know, the guy um, that was uh, bandaged up was was talking to this gentleman who had trouble reading, and the guy was basically as with his last breath and energy wanted this guy to write a letter to his mother, and the gentleman who couldn't you know, read or write that well, he just cried because he was sitting here listening to this man say these words, but he literally could not write them down. And I was just like, wow, this is what happens when our school systems do not do their due diligence to teach our children how to read. Like how fundamental literacy is. Um, it lasted his whole adult, his whole life, even to, you know, his adult years. And um, to sum that story up, you know, w- when he was done with his service with the Marine Corps, um, he still couldn't get any good jobs. And his wife just basically had to help him read stuff and so finally he just said you know what i'm going to go back to school and i'm going to help people like me out who are veterans um you know who just need some assistance and couldn't read and and essentially he got his degree um he learned how to read and he started his own business and that business now helps uh disabled veterans you know whatever they need to to help them get by. But, you know, he wouldn't be able to do that unless he had, you know, <laughs> unless he knew how to read. You know, he couldn't write contracts. Uh, he, he couldn't write invoices. Uh, you know, understand all the legalese that comes with owning the business unless he knew how to read. So it, it, it just... It just really hit home with me. You know, it what you miss out as a child in school affects you for the rest of your life. Um, And uh, I just, you know, I just really hope that, um, you know, whoever listens to that podcast from uh, Emily Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, if they're a teacher or whomever, you know, that they really... They really take to heart, you know, what was being said, not as a, you know, a dart thrown at them, but as constructive criticism to really think, are these kids that I am teaching really reading? You know, because, I mean, literacy is is the foundation of learning. If you can't read, you're not going to learn much. That's just the bottom line. So um, that stood out to me. And then, you know, all of the uh, the different um, people that, you know, were researchers, you know, different professors um, who studied the different um, methods like the, the queuing system and then the other one, which I, I can't name right now. But just, you know, wanted to, to to understand the validity of those two systems and, you know, to, to really see, you know, do they work? You know, are oh, you're talking about reading recovery. Um, Mari Clay's pro- and, and Mari, um, she is from New Zealand. And the sad thing that I think about Mari Clay is the fact that she had a good question. She was really trying to figure out why kids couldn't read. And she came up with a solution, but it wasn't the right solution. And I think the one thing that probably gets lost is like, I don't think Emily is like trying to say like these people are bad. And I think people are hearing that. I think what she's saying is people, I 
don't think anybody intentionally woke up to harm kids. I don't think I anybody woke up and been like, I don't want these kids to read. But I also think there are people who are like, okay, because it hurts. It hurts to be wrong. It hurts to be like, man, I thought I was helping kids and I wasn't. And it also, and then think about it. You thought you were helping kids. You have now come accustomed to a certain type of livelihood because you're making buku money <laughs> off of selling these products. And now to come up to be wrong and, and to think that you might get cut off, that hurts. That hurts on many levels. But at the end of the day, if you got into education for the kids, you're going to take that L and you're going to come back stronger and admit to it. And I think what's disappointing to me about Fontes and Pinnell is that they won't grant interviews. They come out and say stuff on their own terms. But it's like you either come out and have the conversation or the conversation going to be had about you. And and they just say things like, this is divisive. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to, they don't want to get involved, um, you know, in, uh, in, uh, in this debate because they don't think this is a debate worth, worth having. But I, I think, I think we cannot move forward in anything in life if every person from whatever different view is not willing to come to the table and I would hope that they would come to the table because I don't think they got into education to harm kids. I, I think they really want kids to read. I think they want kids to have fun. I think every teacher wants kids to leave their classroom to be learners and that they had fun while it was happening. But some people feel like if they do certain things that kids won't have fun. And I assert it's, it's not really about that. You can make it fun. But at the end of the day, the kids... Uh, uh, they have the, the uh, fundamentals. And one of the things that my husband was just talking about um, made me think about um, orthographic mapping, which Emily mentions on her podcast. And people are like, oh, womp, womp, womp. Let me hear Mr. Barnica. What is that? But <laughs> I was in the classroom today because through my educating assault team work, I'm in classrooms. Through my supervising student teachers, I'm in classrooms. And I watched uh, these kids. They were doing a race. And we do this a lot in school. You say the word, the kid has to spell the word, whoever spells the word fastest, that team gets the point. The teacher said, was, and she said, I'm going to tap it out, uh, was, and then she said, was, and then they were supposed to spell the word, right? The one kid writes, they, and I was sitting in the back of the room like, oh, I already know what's happening. Now, some of y'all are listening like, didn't you just say the word was, was, and the kid wrote, they, so the teacher's like, try again. Kid erased the board. Um, the other kid on the right-hand side has written the W and is stuck. <laughs> so back to the left-hand side, the kid erased they. And then the kid writes you, Y-O-U. And she says, try again. So that kid erased you. Get back to the other side of the board. The kid is right W-U, I think Z. And you're probably like, what the heck just happened here? What is orthographic mapping? What are you saying? So first of all, was is not a was is a word that we call a sight word a heart word a high frequency word what does that mean that's a word that doesn't necessarily follow standard phonemic patterns right so actually w u z is that actually it sounds based on the sounds that kid has known not as actually a realistic spelling the kid just hasn't learned or mapped and i'm gonna explain that for a minute in a minute mapped that was the word was when i hear it so that's the the, the phonology and i always tell people because there's a lot of terms think about telephone you're calling somebody on the phone you're going to talk you're going to hear um they haven't mapped that when i hear the word was that that word when it comes to the orthography that's the spelling looks like the letters w-a-s they haven't mapped that or stuck it into long-term memory to bring it out with automaticity just like that. So what was happening with this kid, they had eight words on the list. The kid on the left-hand side was just writing other words on the list that he had memorized because he didn't have any, any uh, phonemic awareness, any sound like letter recognition. So he was guessing. The kid on the right-hand side hadn't mapped that was, even though it was what us, uh, because that could have been W-A-S, uh, I mean, W-U-S, you know, 
Um, he hadn't figured that out. So he was like, okay, I know that the W makes this sound. So I'm going to put W here. He was trying to figure that out. Uh, and I, I mentioned all this because sometimes even like these simple things, there is some words, there's really no sounding it out. <laughs> you can write it phonetically based on the sound. Like my name, the way it's spelled, Shantae, S-H-A-W-N-T-A. Um, it's not always pronounced the way it's spelled because people have to map or remember <laughs> that when you write S-H-A-W-N-T-A, that is said Shantae. Shantae for Shantae Barnes is spelled S-H-A-W-N-T-A. And that's what we want kids to do. Uh, and, and so you're probably saying, well, that was a lot. What, what does that mean? We say when kids have parents who talk to them, who read to them, they pick up vocabulary. They're seeing words. They're seeing their parents reading and their parent is touching the word after reading the word. Those kids are getting multiple instances of hearing the word orally, seeing the word visually, and then making the connection that that word, when it's said, it is spelled and those are the sounds and it makes that all come together. So when my husband was earlier talking about um, the veteran, he didn't have that. He was missing those skills. And the saddest part to me, and he had a, a, a good ending, is that this man went, his business was to give back to other veterans like him. This man was not fulfilling his purpose in life because he didn't have the skills, the basic skills of literacy. And for me, I want teachers to get up out of their little feelings about that was wrong because you are purpose blockers right now. You are preventing children from fulfilling their purpose because you can't get over the hurt feelings that you were wrong and you used some strategies. But then going back to the school district, there was a lot of assuming. When I think about my husband's job, and he'll probably hop in here in a minute, there's no assuming that something's about to work. He better research what he's about to do in that system because he's just make a, a little guess. And he also has to check stuff. Um, he has to check with his team. He has to check with other people before he does stuff. And the reason I say that, people are like, well, Lucy Calkins came out of Columbia University. We trust that university. She's a researcher, teacher that we trust that if she's a professor, that she's going to use research stuff when she makes her products. And what I'm saying, if you're a parent listening, the question that we have to start asking as parents is what research did you do to show that the products that you purchase is going to work for our kids? Because we can no longer, this podcast, if it didn't improve nothing else, we can no longer go on the reputation or the word or the status of somebody and hope everything works out. You got to have a little bit of, you got to put a little salt in it. You got to be a little bit skeptical like I was. I had no belief that if I just sat back as a parent, my kids were going to learn how to read. I had no belief in that. So I, I grabbed the daggone steering wheel and, and, and took charge. Um, I know that was a lot there, but, uh, but do you got more to say about what I'm, what I'm saying about the correlation between like, because don't you think in this, this podcast, there was just a lot of blind following? Like there was a lot of just assuming that this person checked the research or this was vetted. And now we're finding that a lot of this stuff wasn't, wasn't checked to the level that it needed to be for us to be in the situation that we are now with kids of all races not being able to read or write or spell. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it was it was all... It was all assumption, right? And I can make the joke, you know what assuming does. <laughs> but, um, I mean, that's what it sounded like to me, you know, because, you know, you mentioned Columbia University. You mentioned uh, a tenured professor at Columbia University. Um, Ohio State University was mentioned, um, both with schools of teaching and, and education that are, you know, well-known um, throughout the country and people just just assume oh it's right you know it was kind of like um you know a fad or or craze that just caught on and 
you know, they just, you know, for lack of a better term, they just assume that this teaching methodology was was the Bible. Like you can't go wrong with it. And, you know, there was no there was no vetting process. I think one point that stuck out in in the uh, the podcast, the black teacher, you know, she described her background um but she went on to to teach um in a predominantly uh a minority um population you know a lot of people of color um a lot of minorities and she just questioned you know was she doing enough to get these kids at the right level they should be to read and um you know the principals and some of her colleagues kind of ignored her. So then she asked, um, you know, a colleague, you know, how do I get this um, advancement as far as my craft is concerned? You know, how, how do I get better? How do I get these skills? And, you know, her and her colleague was talking like, well, I'm in this, you know, um, affluent uh, population where the school district is. And this school district pays for me to get all these trainings and everything. And then that led to her being taught, um, not being taught, but going to Columbia University, getting a degree and working under um, Lucy Calkins. Lucy Calkins. And then what she discovered was that (laughs) the same troubles and um, underachieving that was happening in the lower income school districts was happening in these affluent neighborhoods with, you know, these school districts. And the reason, the only reason why those kids in the, uh, you know, where the affluent neighborhoods were at were achieving well is because the parents... (laughs) had the resources to get a tutor, a private tutor like her, to teach their children how to read and do their work. And that was just so annoying to me because it's like, because um, my husband and I, we kind of had it out. Well, you know, kind of, we had it out <laughs> with our, our son's uh, math, honors math teacher because he had uh, emailed us, put this in the email. I just, sometimes I don't even understand. Like, you going to email this to a parent? Mm, but anyway, it's all good now. But he said, y'all should get a tutor. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you the teacher. <laughs> I shouldn't be spending. I'm already, because we're in the school district where we, I, I can't remember when we haven't paid extra taxes for a referendum. So we are paying for all these, uh, paying these extra taxes. Uh, so y'all can keep your jobs, which is good. Like, we have no issue with that. We want the schools to be better. We want the, kid, the teacher to be compensated. But if we're doing all this extra out of our paycheck, we, we expect extra. Our boys are doing well right now. But was was frustrating to me, if our kids weren't doing better or kind of adjusting from going from regular math to honors math, we, would, we could afford a tutor and our kids would be fine. And sometimes we think... Kids in affluent school districts are doing better because they're getting better quality teaching. It's not the teaching. It's the parents paying for tutors. Matter of fact, a lot of those parents pay for teachers to teach their kids outside of the school day or teachers from other places that they know. Um, I've been, I've helped other kids and that's like the worst case secret. Uh, when I talk to my teacher friends, all of us have been asked at some point during our career, to tutor somebody's kid because their kid is not learning in school, which that could be a whole other podcast <laughs> episode about that. Um, and I know it may seem like we talked about a lot of Emily's podcast, but we only literally scratched the surface. You really need to take the time to sit. And it's only six short episodes. Uh, first of all, Emily just has a lovely, just speaking voice person that did the little music in the background. Kudos to you. Uh, and my favorite part, which I will not give away, is who 
um, speaks at the very end or who voice you hear at the very end of the very last episode. Uh, we listened to the very, very end of the last episode and I encourage you to do so. So no, no spoiler alerts there, but hopefully we've said enough about Soul the Story uh, podcast by um, amazing journalist Emily Hanford to get you to at least listen and some key takeaways I want you to take um, after listening to this and after listening to our podcast is, do you know if your kids can read? If you're not sure, get a book, have them read to you. If it doesn't sound like fluent reading, and that means reading that without stops, breaks, or struggles, talk to the teacher immediately. Don't don't pass yeah. go. Don't collect $200 immediately. You draft that email, you call. I don't care when it breaks around the corner. You call immediately. Um, and then start asking questions about the curriculum vetting process, not just for literacy, but for everything. And then ask, wh- where are the parents on these committees? Ask how we can get involved because our tax dollars are going to these schools. Uh, yes, we should support teachers. Teachers should not feel like they're being attacked. But there are teachers in schools who know some of these strategies aren't working, who want to do something differently, but they can't because they don't have support. So don't see this as attacking teachers See this as coming behind them to say, hey, we want you to be getting the good stuff. You may not have been taught this back in college, university. Maybe that professional development taught you some wrong strategy. But we here um, come behind you to make sure you're getting taught right. Because if you don't get taught right, how can you teach our babies right? Um, so, uh, Mr. Barnes, thank you for hopping on the podcast finally. Um, maybe I'll get you back <clears throat> for some other topics and some other ap- episodes. Um I'm uh, so glad our viewers can't see your face right now because um, that didn't seem very amenable. But we'll we'll talk about that a little bit um, uh, offline. But thank you. Thank you again, um, Jermaine Barnes, husband to uh, Educator Barnes. Thank you um, for um, stopping by uh, Brazen Education today and uh, sharing some of your knowledge with our viewers. And um, if, if you liked uh, Mr. Barnes in the podcast, please drop some comments uh, to give him some encouragement um, because his face right now um, <laughs> Uh, Seems like he was forced to be here, which is not the case. He volunteered of his own volition. So um, there it is. So um, thanks so much for listening. And uh, check us out. Well, Well, maybe it's us or maybe it's me and someone else. You'll just have to tune in to the next episode.